0: Let me invite you to turn in your copy of the word to Isaiah 63. We'll be reading verse 7 through verse 14. Let's hear from the prophet Isaiah. Let's hear from our God. These words, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he had granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they're my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down in the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people. To make for yourself a glorious name. Dear friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. This word does not, it endures forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the receiving, the giving, the loving, the believing of his word. Almighty God, we come on this lovely morning. We come and ask you to dust off, dust away Clean up the cobwebs of sentiment and feeling and help us instead to have the feelings that your word should engender, should cause us to have. And I pray, Lord, that we would have a thrill of joy, that our weary souls would indeed rejoice at the gift that you give to us this morning of Christ, your son, our friend, our savior, born in Bethlehem. May we be led by a little child, by him. We pray this in the power of your spirit, in the name of Christ. Amen. I think the cartoon that that captures Christmas better than any other is by that great theologian Bill Watterson, Calvin and Hobbes fame. Calvin, the precocious yet naughty child, the brat, really smart brat. It's Christmas morning. He has a present in his hand. It's all wrapped up. It has Calvin on it for him. And he screams out, ha ha, acquittal on all charges, complete exoneration. I mean, that's a perfect summary, isn't it, of what happens on Christmas morning? It's a great comic because it brings out one aspect of our faith, of the Christian faith and of the Christmas story, the aspect of grace. You know, grace is that word that we use at church a lot. We name churches after it. We love it at one level. We love grace. And yet at another level, we despise grace. We hate grace when we encounter it. I mean, just think of Calvin, the the cartoon character. He's precocious, yes, but he's bad at school. He doesn't like his teacher. His teacher doesn't like him. He's not uh, a very good friend. He's rude to his parents. We won't look at him as, as a good role model for children. On the Christmas scale, from naughty to nice, he would deserve coal in a stocking. Yet miraculously, year after year, Calvin gets acquitted on all counts. He gets presents. He gets gifts because he has two parents called mom and called dad. And they love him very much despite his trouble and despite his merit. That's grace. Grace has its fingerprints all over Christmas, all over your day to day. And the problem is that we try desperately to push grace out of Christmas. As a people, as a culture, as a society, we want to deny grace, and yet we still have the giving and the getting of gifts. It's a time of year, isn't it, when you did not do anything to get presents? It's not your birthday. For most of us, I think. You haven't graduated, certainly. There's no special family anniversary. But every year, like clockwork, December 25th, there are presents under the tree, and they have your name on them. And yet, we still try to make it a legal matter. We still try to smuggle the law in. We still talk about not naughty and nice people. We give Santa Claus a list that he double-checks, like any good legalist He does, so to find out who deserves gifts, who deserves coal. And though we try to throw in good deeds, though, uh, when it comes to December 1st, we start talking about this list because we we think you can't give gifts willy-nilly to ornery people. We try to make it based on goodness, but that never still works. It never actually happens. We talk the talk, but when it comes to walking the walk, the bad kid Calvin still gets presents. No matter how much ruckus he makes with his stuffed tiger, his parents still love him. And perhaps especially the brats, perhaps especially the brats still get loaded down with presents. I mean, I did, didn't you? That's grace, something so big. It scares us when we think about it. But we adore it as long as it's directed towards us, as long as we get grace. It's what we want. It's what everybody wants. We, we, we love when we've been bad and when you failed, there's nothing better than getting a free pass. But we despise grace when it's the aunt or the uncle, when it's the boss or the brother, when they get good things and we can give you a list of all their failings. We know the buttons that they've pushed and they've broken. We know the laws they have failed to keep. We know the disobedience they've had. We're close to them. They don't deserve it. The story is told that the famous politician, Ted Kennedy, paid somebody to take his entrance exam into Harvard. Now, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is true, how does that fit with you? What do you think about that fact? Maybe you want to say, dirty politician, I knew it. But think about it. I mean, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we want? Somebody to give us a break when we need it? Somebody to do the hard stuff for us? We all want a substitute to go in our place and do the dirty work for us. But when it's given to Ted Kennedy, or somebody we don't like, we hate it. We love grace, and we hate grace. We want people to see past our ugliness and our faults and see that really we had good motives, we had good intentions all along, if only you knew. And yet, when it comes to other people, suddenly the... She was on the other foot. We love to say, you did this. I don't care what your motives were. You did this and that. So we come this morning to a text that should really move us. We come this morning to a text in Isaiah that should really change us when it comes to our view of grace. I mean, not just move us in terms of emotional. Oh, it's Christmas morning and we're having a nice sermon. It'll be wonderful. No, no, no. Not just move our feelings. But you need to be moved by the reality of the son of God coming to earth, taking on flesh and blood. My hope by the end of this is that you won't see grace simply as a concept, simply just sprinkled into our hymns, simply just a word we say, or even a grace just given for me, myself, and I. Instead, you and I must be moved in our hearts and our souls to live out of grace, to operate based upon the grace-soaked life, so that every day is a Christmas day. To do something that is nonsense to our whole culture to be like our Heavenly Father. So let's open Isaiah 63. It's not your usual text to read on Christmas, but I hope to show us its value and relevance. We see here first, verse 7 to verse 9, we see first that God is a Father of mercy. God's a Father of mercy. Please read in verse 7, look there. I'll recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us. You'll note he says in the end of verse 7, Why has God done these things for his people, for these Israelites? Because of his compassion, because of his hesed, his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. We see first a clear review of God's kindness to his own. God has been kind. And particularly, we get a kind of a a, a moment of kindness, an act of kindness. It's that great action in the Old Testament. So that great that great moment in the Old Testament for the Jews, the best moment they ever had in their lives was the exodus, that salvation. He delivered Israel from Pharaoh, from slavery in Egypt. He did far more than they deserved. And the motive that Isaiah points out here is God's mercy. Nothing in the people said, deliver us, deliver us. Nothing in them said, you're worth it. But he did. Everything in their God said, deliver, deliver. He acted because he looked at his own compassion. He looked at his own love and he said, I am driven to save. You'll notice that verse 8 gives us a very fascinating reason. In addition to the compassion, there's something else here that God has. He said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. Now, I mean, if you know anything about Israel, you know anything about the Old Testament and the way the people treated God, this is a lie. This is silly. They dealt falsely all the time with God. They love to just go after others. They love to do anything else but God. They love to manipulate God. They love to use God. They love to ignore God. They love to play him false. And yet, God, nonetheless, in his love, he lifts them up. He lifts them up. They are his people. And God says, You're my kids, you're my children. He carries them like a father carries a child. That's verse nine, beautiful statement. He lifts them up. He carries them all the days of old. I mean, think of your own kids, mom and dad. They're the ones he bought presents for today. Think about how much you love them. Even in their failure, you desire for them to go forward in life and to do well. That's God vis-a-vis Israel. He has love, he has care for his kids. I love you, so I will save you. Notice the, the order there, right? Verse 8, because they are my children, I will become their Savior. Not, I will save them so they'll be my kids. Rather, it's because of who you are that God already has set his love upon you and called you his children. Therefore, he does this action. He saves him. They're his son. And the problem is I mean, that sounds great, right? That, I mean, that, 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 that'll preach. Isn't that what they say? That'll preach. The problem is what, what follows it. The real issue here is what happens next. I mean, all this uh, wonderful statements about God's mercy, that, that's a Christmas text, I suppose. But, but what about verse 10 following? We see, second here, that though you have God as the father of mercy. You have his, his people are not uh, merciful. They're disobedient. We see a disobedient people. You see verse 10. All this mercy, all this fatherly care, but... They rebelled, but they rebelled. More than that, they grieved his Holy Spirit. His own kids rebelled, and it's interesting that the the first thing that's pointed out here is not that God became their enemy. That's number two. It's not that God was angry with them, but actually it's heartbreak. God is heartbroken, first of all, over this relationship. That's why the Holy Spirit's mentioned. Because when God comes near his people in the Old Testament, his spirit is the one who comes near. It's always his glory and his spirit they come near. But the spirit is grieved now. He's grieved of the rebellion of his son. Israel's not a worker, you know, disappointing their boss. Not a failure for some great distant king. They reject their dad. And now their dad's their enemy. Hosea will tell us of a similar point where God loved them, fed them. He bent down to care for them. He loved them with love cords. Love cords. Cords of love. Yet they fail. They disobey. All the mercy, all the grace, all the kindness, they still disbelieve. They still disobey. So where's the hope? I mean, this is this is the story, right? This is this is the issue. Where's the solution? Where's the future? You'll be happy to know we're already in point three. It's the longest one. <clears throat> Good God, bad people. Thirdly, what do we have here? The future. How can there be a possible future for them? And how can there be a possible future for you, for me, for us? In herself, Israel has no hope. In herself, Israel is hopeless. Unless God acts, all is lost. And of course, this is what you see in verse 14. Like livestock that go down the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. You see it in verse 11, he remembered the days of old, right? God fought against his own people. Daddy fought against his kids. And then he remembered what he had done. And he gave them more gifts. He led them again. There's some people who say that Christmas is not about the gifts. You know, That's a saying people use these days, a the well-meaning thing, right? That Christmas is not about the presents, It's about something else. No, that's wrong. Bahambug, Error. Christmas is all about the presents. All about the gifts. It just may be that you're looking at the wrong gifts. It's supremely about the gift of God's grace given by God himself. And then you, which you've done this morning, today, you imitating the good giver of every perfect gift are summoned to give to other people to one another. You see, Christmas is all about the gifts. It's all about the presents. And I think maybe our problem is that we haven't realized the first gift of God. We haven't actually realized the gift that God's given to us. I mean, this is the answer to the Old Testament dilemma. How does God save wayward kids? How does God save children who have received patient, consistent, constant parental love and have still disobeyed? That's your problem. It's also Israel's problem. That's well, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. This is Christmas. God gives. It's what Matthew shows us. I don't have time to go through all of Matthew's gospel. But if you look through Matthew's, Matthew's gospel, you will see that Jesus Christ is a second Israel. He's a Israelite in whom there is no sin. He is Jesus. He's sent into Egypt. He's called out of Egypt like Israel. Matthew quotes Hosea. Directly, he's tempted like Israel, where? In the desert. All of that to demonstrate that Jesus is replaying the path of the wayward son. He is replaying the path of Israel, of God's people. But unlike the people, verse 10, unlike those who rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, the son never grieved the spirit. The The son worked together with the spirit in concert, in beautiful alliance. Never flagging, never failing, never rebelling against his father, the obedient one, the obedient son, humbly obeying. So here's the question. What actually can save Israel and implicitly you? What can save Israel from her sins? What can save you from your rebellion? Not a list. Not a list of who's been naughty, who's been nice. I mean, that's the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament sets up the naughty, nice list. And the problem is when the naughty list and the nice list are set up, the law can condemn all of us. We're on the naughty list. The only one who can save Israel from herself is God stepping up to the plate once more. God Himself must reach down. God Himself must deliver again. So God sends His Son. Jesus, born of a woman, born under the naughty, nice list we call the law, and he delivers his faithful son into what? Does Jesus Christ, the faithful one, get acquittal on all charges like Calvin? Does he get exonerated on Christmas morning? No. Jesus Christ, the innocent son who does not deal falsely, he is delivered up in judgment, the just judgment that Israel and you deserve. Instead of getting reward, he received condemnation. Why? So that God could do for you what he said he would all along. So that God could give solely based upon his love for you and not anything that you've done for him. Because of his steadfast love, he did this for them. Because of his steadfast love, he did this for you. He came near to us in human form to do what you couldn't do for ourselves. This son... Jesus Christ, he comes as the faithful son. And yet what happens to him? He becomes the enemy of God. God himself fights against him. He forsakes him so that you might be called sons of the father, that you might be called heirs of the covenant, that you might get all the blessings of heaven above. Nothing you've done to deserve it. It's God from start to finish all of grace. I mean, you should love that fact, really, that it's all grace. You should love that Christmas is the start of all grace. You should know yourself well enough to know that if you tried it, you'd ruin it. Because grace is good news when it's for us. But, of course, our culture and our nature say, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's a quid pro quo. It's a give and a take. The philosophers tell us that you can know a good man by his deeds. Grace says the exact opposite. But think of our world. Think of our 21st century world. What do we love? We love style. We love the trends. We love people who are worth it. We love that ephemeral thing we call the cool. We're always chasing the cool. And the sad thing is, if you had perspective, you'd realize that the cool is going to be stupid in 20 years or 20 seconds or 20 minutes. That you are embracing things right now that your grandparents thought were insane, and your grandkids will hate you for it. They will think you were fuddy-duddy if you chase the cool. And and what is the relationship advice that comes from this culture or the types of relationships that occur in this culture? 50-50, even split. You give half, I give half. I mean, isn't this how you treated Christmas, some of us? You said, how much are you going to spend on me I will equal that amount. Are you going to spend $10? All right, I will get you a $10 gift because I can't owe you anything. That's how we work, that's how we operate. It's not fair. I'll be your friend as long as you are worth my time and my investment. I don't want to put myself out there in case you're not worth it. I'll stay married as long as my needs are met. But if the moment they're not met, the moment I feel like I'm not getting much out of it, I'm out of here. Some benefit must be there, or there's no reason in our culture to do it. And God comes and blows that all up. He disrupts that. He chooses a bride who nets him zero gain. She has no beauty. She's a hag. She's a nag. That's you. That's me. And God loves a son who does nothing but spits on the family name. That's grace. That's unfair at its core, biting at our way of thinking. It's unwelcome in our nature. It's unwelcome in our world. And it's even unwelcome in the church. This is why the great Georgian writer, Flannery O'Connor, she said this one time, grace is never received warmly. Grace is always received with a recoil. What does she mean by that? She means, of course, that it's not, it's not, you, you, you think we would love grace, but we recoil from it. But we don't actually really want grace. We want to live according to what is fair and what we think is fair. That's why you give a gift to somebody if they're nice to you. And you can check your list off. You can go to the next store and buy the next gift and check your list off and feel good that you've completed your shopping. Didn't you feel good when you got it all done? Some of y'all may have not gotten all done yet. You better hurry, by the way. That's the way the world operates. God says... I give freely, I give fully to bratty kids all year long. And in my gift, and the gift of my son supremely, I give towards the perps. I give to perpetrators. I give to offenders. I give to sinners. I come forward into your life. That is how you have been born again as a Christian. You're a perp. You're a criminal. God pursued criminals like you and he gave himself to you. And that offends us because we don't like thinking of ourselves in that way. But Christmas screams of it. I mean, just think about it. You're sitting here Christmas morning and you've just spent your money on gifts for others. And the question is, what are you going to do this week? What are you going to do in a month when the season's over? Will you continue to wait for people to kind of prove themselves to spend your money? your effort, your time. Are you going to be like the God who gave to his own hurt? Only at Christmas do we have this dilemma of life getting solved. The baby boy did what the law, the naughty and nice list demanded. He substituted in our place. And we love that substitution when it's for us. We love it when it's on our side. But freely you have received, Christian. So freely you are called to give Christ has done all this for you, not so you can bask in the warmness of grace, but so that you can do the weird thing, the outrageous thing in the eyes of others that you can love your wives, husbands, not when they're lovely or presentable, not when they show they respect you, but when they're unlovable, when they're abrasive for God's the love that he gave. And wives can love husbands, not when they measure up, not just respect them when they're respectable, but rather give and give in the face of anger and failure. And brothers can love sisters, not just when they've been nice, but when they've been naughty. It goes beyond, of course, marriage. It goes into our bosses, our neighbors. God has loved us, not so that you can make a list and check it twice, but to give love that looks stupid in the eyes of the world. As the cross looked stupid, the height of folly. And so, dear Christian, what is Christmas morning about? It's all about the presents. It's all about the gifts. Freely you have received, so freely you may give, like your maker, your defender, your redeemer, and our friend. Let's pray. Almighty and glorious God, we praise you as the giver of every good gift, and every perfect gift, even the ones we don't think about, We ask that you would make us those who don't just recoil at grace or just love it when it's for us, but make us like your son who gives for others to his own hurt, his own dereliction, his own death, even his blood spent. May you, Lord, by your spirit show, show us, stagger us. With your gospel that we might give In response. I pray this father. Coming to you. In the person of your son. And his constant intercession. On our behalf. We thank you that he is the faithful one. And we pray this. As your people. Amen.